Welcome to podcast number 10 of Irreligiosophy. 10. So, 10 podcasts already. I'm pretty sure that means we've only got 10 listeners at this if point. If we're lucky, 10 yeah. listeners. And we're, we're about to get rid of the remaining, uh, or all the listeners that we've gathered, I think. Yeah, well, you know, when you start discussing something as asinine as the LDS religion, you're going to lose a lot of people. <laughs> and we've decided not only to do it for one podcast, but we're going to devote the entire month to um, the fallacies of Mormonism. Yeah, now my hope is... I'm still out there searching, but my hope is to find some educated, intelligent, Mormon, religious people to come on here and actually dispute the research that we've done into this and what we know about the LDS Church in and of itself. That may prove impossible, but I am searching. Yeah, I'd settle for um, a clear and convincing answer on Adam God in the Book of Abraham. Yeah, I don't think we're going to get any of that. I did mention that I was going to search, though. <laughs> so what we'd like to do in this podcast is to just kind of discuss the basics of Mormonism. In the next two podcasts, we're going to go into a lot of depth, I think, into uh, both the Pearl of Great Price, Book of Abraham, yeah. um, Adam God, I think I'd like to hit... Yeah, well, this podcast definitely is just going to be for the basis of those who don't know that much about the LDS religion. And then once we've got the uh, the basics down, then we'll tear it apart right in front of you. So you think we're um, going to be able to fill up an entire hour worth of basics of Mormonism? I think if Glenn Beck could talk about retardation as he does, I'm sure we can do the same. Well, let's give it a go. So, um, Joseph Smith, born in 1805. Yep. Very correct. Uh, basically grew up, lots of stories in the LDS religion about him. There's one in particular that's always been my favorite. Uh, I guess he had cancer in his bone marrow. The doctor needed to cut it out. He probably had, my guess is it was an infection. He had yeah. like a, like a osteomyelitis or some type of cellulitis or some tissue infection. and They didn't have antibiotics, so they had to cut it out. Yeah. Now, do you know the story I'm bringing up? Yeah, yeah. It's very yeah. common inside the Mormon church, and it's to show how not only tough Joseph Smith was, but how virtuous he was as well. Yeah, well... Because they didn't have anesthesia. They didn't have either. anesthesia, so they were offering him alcohol so he could get a little bit uh, tipsy before they started cutting him open, and he resoutly refused. Now, this in... Wait, resoutly refused? Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, it's not my fault. Your family got me up early this morning. <laughs> anyway. So the idea is, um, even as a kid, he refused alcohol. Yeah, which is very interesting because in the LDS church, they have the word of wisdom, which means they can't drink caffeine, they can't drink alcohol, because it's harmful to the body. So this is actually just kind of a story that the LDS church tosses out there in order for them to be able to say, you know, our prophet was so inspired that even as a child, he knew that alcohol was bad for him. This is a time of kind of religious fervor and kind of like the Great Awakening. People are changing religions back and forth. Tons of preachers out there gaining new converts. And he's not sure what religion to join. Yeah, basically he's been going around listening to them and as the story goes, he's asking questions, but none of them are actually able to answer these questions for him. And so he's back and forth, back and forth, and he's pondering it so much that one day he decides, just like Charlie and I did in our younger days, 
to go out into the mountains, kneel down in between some trees, and start doing some praying. And you'll never guess what happened next. Well, it was different from our experiences because God actually visited him. I'm pretty sure that was a psychotic episode because, I mean, if I would have... See, <laughs> how it goes is, at first, he is pinned down by this really dark, malevolent vo uh, force that stops him from thinking he's almost giving in, and then all of a sudden, the light comes. And then a couple of personages come down and say, oh, by the way, I'm God, this is Jesus. And he points out they look exactly alike. So apparently God and Jesus aren't father and son, they're identical twins. Well, that would make sense when you're talking about the Trini Trinity. I mean, you know, uh, he is his own father. Well, where's the Holy Ghost? How come he didn't appear? I'm not even going to touch that one. I almost did. <laughs> <laughs> he was too busy um, haunting houses or something. So they tell him that uh, you can't join any church because all of the churches are wrong. They're all abominations in God's eyes. And uh, you need to start your own religion, basically. Yeah, basically, all of these churches, although at one time they had the true teachings of Christ and God, however, somewhere along the line they fell away, and now it's all an abomination to God anyway. So why even join one? So then the story gets real interesting is uh, they guide him up to the top of a hill where he... Wait. What? Uh, he actually um, doesn't do anything, I think, for a couple of years. What? Right? No, 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 no. They guide him up. They show him where the golden plates are. And then when he tries to touch them, supposedly in his mind he starts thinking, wow, with this much gold I could change my family's wait, lives. Wait a second. You haven't heard this? No, no, no. Didn't that happen with Moroni? The the angel Moroni appeared to him in his bedroom. You're talking about the second vision now. Oh, is that the second vision? I get it confused sometimes. <laughs> it all kind of bleeds together. So I think, and this is one of the reasons, you know, we should have probably read probably. this section. In the <laughs> um... He uh, goes for a couple of years, doesn't join any churches, and then, um, like in the middle of the night one night, uh, he... Oh, um, I think you might be right. I think it was the middle of the night. He's, he, uh, the, his room lightens up, and there's a personage in the room, and uh, he tells him that, you know, he's going to have this, this great job to do for God. And it involves a series of golden plates, and he shows, or he tells him how to get there and how to dig him up and that sort of thing. And he comes in like three times, I think, that night and repeats them just to make sure that. Yeah, I always he, found uh, that a little strange. Why would weird. you have to be woken up three different times to say, "Dude, you got a role to fulfill." Oh, by the way, go to this rock on top of uh, the mountain there and push it aside. Would oh. you be a little angry? I'd be like, it's 2 o'clock in the morning, Moroni. Jesus Christ. I'd start throwing things at him. I get so pissed off when <laughs> oh. I get woken up. It's like, come God on, sakes. I got work in the morning. Again. He's waking me up again. You I just mean, told me this. He's a farm boy, supposedly. Doesn't Moroni know that he's got to get yours. up? I got to milk the cows. Come on. Three times? What? A, I mean, where's his REM sleep going I, at that point? I'm not giving you have enough energy to screw the goats tomorrow. Well, you know, that's why they have cowboy boots. Why? Well, you know, so you can stick the horns in the fence and put the back legs in the boots so they can't get away. 
<laughs> Can't believe I've never told you that one. You can tell Leighton actually was a farmer when he grew up because he knows this stuff. Yeah, yeah. Actually, uh, I do wear cowboy boots too, so that's kind of a sad, sad rendition. <laughs> so he uh, wakes up the next morning, does his chores, and then he goes out to this hill, Camorra. Is that what it was? I believe it's called Camorra. And he dug, and exactly where the angel said... Um, was these well, actually, the big box. I he guess. didn't really dig. He didn't dig. What it was is he pushed aside a rock. He brought up a lever or something, pushed aside the rock, and there was this square carved out stone that he could look into where the golden plates and uh, all the other little trinkets were sitting in there. But he was prevented from uh, removing the golden plates by the angel, right? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, at this point, as the story goes, he started thinking in his mind, wow, with this type of stuff, I could really change my family's lives. He reached in to touch it and got shocked. And basically, the angel came down and said, you aren't ready. Go away. He wasn't righteous enough. So every year for the next, I don't know, two or three years, he'd go four, back to the spot. And uh, finally... The angel allows him, and he can uh, open up the plates. And what does he find? These plates of gold. Oh, yes. Nothing like a, a nice set of gold plates. Because I, I really know that in history, a lot of times they they scrawl on gold plates. I'm sure that's that was All used very commonly. Very common. yeah. and, and for a book of this size, the Book of Mormon covers uh, history, in quotes, from 600 B.C. to about 600 <laughs> A.D., right? Uh, it's 1,200 years of history. It's a fairly thick book, um, bigger than the New Testament. Not as big as the Old Testament, but yeah. it's a fairly thick book. To write this thing on plates, um, that's Golden a pretty goddamn plates. heavy book to lift. Well, see, and I mean, that that's something that I've considered, too. I mean, if if you are really trying to get that much written on golden plates... I mean, can you imagine how small the words and the letters would have to be to yeah. fit all that on? Right. And uh, he said that these um, uh, the, the writing was Reformed Egyptian. <laughs> yeah, something I've, very interesting. I've actually. never heard of Reformed Egyptian before. Oh, are you an Egyptologist? Uh, no, clearly not. Pretty close, actually, though. Both me and Charlie, <laughs> we are Egyptomaniacs. We're avid amateurs, I guess. Yeah, um, yeah we love Egyptian history. So I thought it was I thought it was funny that they were it was written in reformed Egyptian or whatever it was. Yeah, yeah, it was reformed Egyptian and uh basically Joseph Smith had the Urim and the Thummim that uh why uh would a bunch of Jews write their holy books in reformed Egyptian? See, that is always something that's plagued <laughs> me too. I mean, why Egyptian? Why not? Was any of the Old Testament written in hieroglyphs? I mean, was this a common practice at all in 600 B.C.? 600 B.C. Uh, is around the time of the Babylonian exile, right? Where they were yeah. captured and taken yeah. away into slavery in Babylon. What does Egypt have to do with this at all? Yeah, this is after Egypt. This is after the Exodus. And probably between the Babylonian exile and the time that, um, or maybe a little after, where Cyrus from Persia conquered and and, uh, and really, lifted the exile and that yeah, sort of thing. Yeah. Right around the same time. Anyway, this uh, Joseph Smith uh, has to get uh, someone to translate these plates for him. 
Well, not really someone to translate it, but someone to write it down. Now, this a is scribe. He needs a scribe to translate or to, to write down his translation. Why? I don't know. Joseph Smith could write, right? Well, actually, that was uh, that was another thing that uh, I, I, I'm sure you, uh, since you didn't go to all the religion that I did, but that was another thing that the LDS Church likes to use, saying, you know what, Joseph Smith only had a sixth grade education. There is absolutely no way he could come up with the Book of Mormon. And that's something they use. <laughs> I, I heard he had a third grade education. Third grade? He keeps getting dumber and dumber, I guess. Well, you know, uh, when you uh, start learning, you regress. Third, sixth, he, he can still write. Yeah. I mean, you know how to write. So why does he need a scribe? Well, see, that's very strange, too, because, I mean, whether it's a third grade or a sixth grade, if he's seeing the words in front of him, doesn't he just have to copy the letters? Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know how the... It's obviously a mystical process. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> is it going directly into his brain where all he's doing is repeating everything that's works. seen on there? I mean, really, there's... It, it's kind of funny that he would even need a scribe, but basically how it worked is he, uh, he would have Martin Harris sitting on the other side of a sheet. Yeah, he found this guy named Martin Harris who's, uh, I think, fairly well-to-do. He owns a farm. Yeah. Um, he's got a wife who initially believed, and I think they initially donated some money to help finance this thing, and uh, they kind of got sucked into Joseph Smith, clearly a very charismatic person. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, I mean, yeah, he, he was a well-to-do man. I mean, in the end of it, at the very end, he put up $3,000 to actually publish the Book of Mormon. Yeah, he mortgaged his mortgaged farm. Mortgaged his farm for $3,000. So, I mean, back then, $3,000, that was a sizable farm. But Martin Harris's wife actually started asking to see what, uh, <laughs> what the Book of Mormon and what the Golden Plates looked like, and Charlie... Was his wife's name was Lucy? I think I believe so. She uh, searched the entire house when they were gone and couldn't find the plates. And Joseph Smith came back and he said, "Well, I don't need the plates to transcribe it. All I need is a seer stone, so it's buried out in the woods." <laughs> yeah. So she couldn't find it in the house or in the woods. Shocking. Shocking. And he doesn't even have to have them nearby when he translates them. This is again. Uh, not what you hear in the church. Oh, it no, was that they definitely. had the plates behind that sheet. They were separated because Martin Harris couldn't see it. They're too holy or whatever. And so he would be looking at the Urim and Thummim and, and translating these plates, right, and turning the pages as he goes. This is the picture you get. Oh, actually, you just reminded me of a story I've actually heard in Mormon history where basically a mob came to Joseph Smith's house and he gathered up the plates, wrapped them into a sheet or something, and started to run away, and he had to fight off people in the mob to get away as he was sprinting away in the night, saving the golden plates. While carrying the golden plates. While carrying these massively heavy golden plates. and I find that hard to believe. Well, it's even brought up that these would be massively heavy, and they say that God was strengthening him, because through <laughs> God, all things are possible. People are idiots. <laughs> really. Yeah, so, I mean, that that's just kind of a side thing. So, I mean, basically... You have Martin Harris's wife, who's becoming increasingly suspicious of Joseph Smith, so she starts demanding certain things, seeing this, the golden plates, or even seeing the fruits of their labor. I mean, originally she wanted the golden plates, but instead she settled for at least getting the 116 pages that they had translated this. So the first 116 pages are the Book of Lehi, 
and this is Nephi's father. Um, yeah. the, Lehi was a, a apparently a claimed to be an Old Testament, so he's a Jerusalem prophet. So these are these are Hebrews. Yeah, um, he led his family uh, and a couple other people out of Jerusalem because it was about to be destroyed. Maybe this was just before the Babylonians. Um, it could be but invaded. Yeah, basically he was preaching. The people didn't like what he was preaching. God told him, "Take your family and leave because they're going to come and kill you." And then, of course, they go back to get uh, get some plates that again. Brass plates. Brass plates this time. Again, back in the old times, they were really carving all sorts of stuff on these plates. amazing. They're all over the place. Yeah. And so... uh, So they they grab those. They sail across uh, the Atlantic Ocean and land in America. Uh, And in the Book of Mormon, it says it's been hidden from all other people, right? This is a pristine land. So this is a pristine land. There's nobody on it until these Hebrews show up. It's... um, the Native Americans are Hebrews. Yeah, actually, the Native Americans, they are these Hebrews, these descendants of Nephi and Lehi, who are cursed because they are so evil that their skin darkens. That's great. So this is the story that he's translating right now. So she keeps nagging him and pestering him, and finally uh, he goes, Joseph Smith says, okay, I'm going to go pray to the Lord about it. And the Lord says no. But that's not good enough. She keeps pestering Martin Harris, so she's, she's this. Um, she keeps haranguing him, right? This is how she's <laughs> As portrayed. As she should. I'm sorry. She, when you're shoveling money towards somebody and not seeing anything, you should harangue your husband or wife. She's henpecking these poor guys who are just trying to get the word of the Lord out. Oh, obviously. Uh, and so Joseph Smith goes back, and again the Lord says no. But that doesn't stop her. She keeps going. Finally, uh, Joseph Smith goes and prays, and the Lord says yes. You you can you can take these and but just show them to the five people in Martin Harris's family and and that's it and so ecstatic Martin Harris takes them home away from Joseph Smith's house back to his farm and locks them up in a dresser <clears throat> and shows um, the five people uh, his wife and apparently pretty much anyone else anybody who who's is interested by. or remotely. in fact I'm pretty sure what happened was is his wife was the one to lock it up. Because he actually had to pick the lock and broke it in Which his process of picking it. Pissed off the wife even more, right? And so now it's got a broken lock and the manuscript pages disappear. What to do, what to do. Now this brings up a curious, real curious bit of history and thought in the LDS tradition. This is a conundrum. This is a conundrum. And what it is, is why didn't Joseph Smith just retranslate those 116 pages? It's funny because um, that's what Martin Harris's wife said. <laughs> what are you guys worried about? You know, you divinely transcribed it once, you can do it again. Yeah, now, curiously enough, Joseph Smith had an answer for that. And it was that the people who stole it were wicked, wicked men. And that if they were to retranslate these, these wicked men would change the words. And then bring it back and say, see, this isn't what he uh, did. Obviously, he didn't do it twice. And that's the, that would harm the work of the Lord, um, so you can't do it. Uh, and I remember very well uh, an entire seminary, a um, uh, whole hour of seminary was devoted to this topic. And uh, he, rem- he said, the seminary teacher said, how wicked do these people have to be? 
because if um, Joseph Smith did retranslate it, they had it in their hearts, they were going to change it. But if he translated it again, if it was word for word, that had to be miraculous, and that would have proved that God was behind it, and they still would have changed it. Wicked people. <laughs> oh, sorry about that. Uh, it, it just amazes me that thinking people, uh, because th this story kind of made me suspicious as a kid, too. And, you know... Yeah, you know, I mean, you could you could just smell the type of circular yeah, reasoning. Something's wrong here. Something's wrong. There was no Mormon church. There couldn't be any anti-Mormons. Who cares about an unpublished book? It's it's like Satan, but they have, you know, Mormons think Satan's out there. He's trying to stop God's work from rolling forward. Which is very curious because back in that time, it's like Frank, a big soap opera. Yeah, it's a huge soap opera. But back in that time, I can guarantee you if I heard about somebody translating something, a new ancient document, I wouldn't be trying to bury it. I'd be trying to find out what it is. Yeah. Uh, it always sounded really suspicious to me. I gave Joseph Smith the benefit of the doubt when I was a kid. Oh, well, all right, maybe um, maybe they would have changed it, and that, that, would, have, that would have harmed God's work. But, uh, uh, you know, Mormonism survived worse than that. Yeah. <laughs> they survived polygamy. Oh. Uh, so I think that would have been merely a blip on the radar. I got to tell you, though, my theory on the whole subject We've got a wife here who already thinks that Joseph Smith is taking advantage of him. I mean, she searched his house looking for the golden plates, couldn't find them, and then was told that he doesn't need them around to be able to translate off of them? I gotta tell you, if I was that wife, I would steal those pages and then go to them again and say, well, what do you got to worry about? Just retranslate it. Absolutely. That is what I think happened to those pages. She hid them somewhere waiting for them to retranslate just so she could have a shred of proof that she and her husband weren't being taken for a ride. So Joseph Smith repents, and the Lord tells him not to translate again. Apparently his ability to translate was taken away for a while, and yeah. then restored, and translation resumed. Uh, they finished the Book of Mormon, I think, uh, you know, I don't know, six to nine months later. Something like that. And uh, they're uh, going to publish it, but they don't have any money. So once again, Martin Harris comes to the rescue. He mortgages wow. his farm, $3,000, as a hedge because the publisher is like, I'm not putting my money on the line. I'm not paying for it. Um, so Martin Harris puts up his farm as collateral, and the, the, you know, a hedge against the Book of Mormon not oh, selling really and recouping the profits. He lost his farm, and that was the last straw for his wife. That, was, his wife up and left him. at that point. I mean, this... I really feel bad for Martin Harris. I mean, right after losing the pages, he was being called a wicked man and such. I, I feel bad for the guy. He was taken for a ride. He, he doesn't seem like he's the smartest guy around. Yeah, I would have to agree. Okay, so Book of Mormon's published, and the church is organized, I believe, April 6, 1830, which Joseph Smith picked that day because that's when Jesus Christ was actually born, not on December 25th. Yes, this is what I've heard. There is an account. When he got the Book of Mormon published, he had, and it's very, uh, you'll hear this from missionary, all the way from missionaries to the top of the church, the prophet himself, um, three witnesses and eight witnesses? I believe so. And you can actually find this in the front of every Book of Mormon. It's, it's the testimony of the three witnesses and the testimony of the eight witnesses. All right, so let's read an excerpt of the, the testimony of the three witnesses. Be it known to all nations, kindreds, tongues, and people unto whom this work shall come, 
that we, through the grace of God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, have seen the plates which contain these, this record, which is a record of the people of Nephi and also the Lamanites, their brethren, blah, 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 blah. And we also know that they have been translated by the gift and power of God, um, for his voice hath declared it unto us. Wherefore, we know of a surety that the work is true. I love how they slip into like King James English. Yeah. We declare with words of soberness that an angel of God came down from heaven and he brought and laid before our eyes that we beheld and saw the plates and the engravings thereon. And we know as by the grace of God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ that we beheld and bear the record that these things are true. Now, the three witnesses are Oliver Cowdery, David Whitmore, and Martin Harris. And there's also testimony of the eight witnesses, which pretty much is the same thing, um, except they say that... Uh, Joseph Smith Jr., the translator of this work, has shown unto us the plates of which hath been spoken, which have the appearance of gold, and as many of the leaves as, as the said Smith had translated, we did handle with our hands. And we also saw the gravings thereon, all of which has the appearance of ancient work and of curious worksmanship. Now, I want to read the people that are the eight witnesses, and I want, want to find out if any of our listeners can actually discern a pattern developing here. The first witness is Christian Whitmer. Jacob Whitmer, Peter Whitmer Jr., John Whitmer, Hiram Page, Joseph Smith Sr., Hiram Smith, Samuel H. Smith. Now, uh, just let me know if you guys ever notice a pattern. It seems completely him. random to me. Uh, like he just picked eight people that he had no relation to and uh, weren't his friends. Just Probably just eight people off the street, right? Oh, I can see that, yes. So anyway, you have these uh, witnesses who, I would like to stress, state that they see, have seen the Book of Mormon, the and Golden Plates, it. and handled it with their own eyes. Uh, all right, so the church um, is formed by the power of the priesthood. I believe the story goes that uh, Joseph Smith um, went out into the woods with, uh, they were they were reading a section on baptism or something like that yeah it was and something about uh it was it was about restoring the priesthood how they all something. realized they didn't have the priesthood and, and so, so they go out there and peter james and john appear to joseph smith and his buddy and confer the priesthood upon joseph and uh, his friend and, yeah. and they use that priesthood to organize the church yeah, so they, now it's been restored now the entire fulfillment of god's plan has been restored this is the third dispensation, the third time that God has restored his gospel on this world. You think if he would do it a second time, it would last, but obviously he needed a third time. I remember the second time was with Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Yep. So um, the church says that it fell away pretty rapidly after Jesus, certainly within a, a century or two, right? Yeah, yeah. It lasted maybe till all the original apostles and then fell away into apostasy. Uh, amazingly enough, Joseph Smith's church has stayed uh, true uh, for now 170 years. Yeah, good on you, folks. I think we should have a birthday cake prepared, uh, something with 170 candles on it somewhere. Almost in 2010 will be the 180th anniversary of, yeah. of the final dispensation. That'll be pretty impressive, and I love how they love to say final dispensation. I'm just waiting for God to come down and rapture us, destroy us. And as my father always told me, the reason why the wicked will be destroyed is because they can't stand the presence of God. They aren't righteous enough, and so they're burned away. Now, does that <laughs> sound anything similar to Greek mythology, where if a mortal stepped in the presence of a god, that they would be burned away? I'm sorry. They're just... <laughs> 
they're too embarrassed by their sins? Is that what? Yeah, pretty they much. Can't... Their sins made them unclean, and so they could not stand in the presence of God. And you want to know what fire protection was for them? If you pay your tithing, that is fire protection against God's second coming. Yeah, you won't be destroyed. It's a joke in the Mormon church that the tithing is fire insurance because the, revela the revelation that uh, instituted it, I think, uh, said that if you pay it, then you, you'll avoid the depths of hell or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 somewhat comical to say the least. So now Joseph Smith has the church formed, and and it's growing. Um, I think at this point they're still in New York. Uh, eventually he ends up moving to Missouri. Missouri, Missouri. and they they the Mormons form a little community in Missouri. And the thing about the Mormons are they they tend to vote in one block, and so. They were uh, threatening to um, make drastic changes, I guess, because they'd all vote one way and the rest of the, the county was pretty split. So the way the Mormons would vote would pretty much determine that was the main, I think, complaint that the Missourians oh, had. It was a huge issue. And I mean, in fact, this issue lasted even when they finally made it to Salt Lake City, Utah, because a lot of presidential candidates would come down and they would try to woo over the higher-ups in the LDS church to get them to vote. So, you know, there, there are conflicts with the locals in Missouri, and eventually uh, Governor Boggs uh, gives the notorious extermination order and says that um, you can go ahead and kill Mormons. And that was on the books all the way up until about 10 years ago, I think, is when they finally took it out. Yeah, that's what I love. You could still legally kill a Mormon and like get away it. with it. I like it. And so then they moved down to Nauvoo in Illinois, and they actually had a, their own charter, and that actually protected them quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, and that lasted, I think, Joseph Smith was general of the army. They had their own little military, militia, and there was a the nice painting with... His little shoulder braids on where he's general and he has like a sword drawn or something. I have never seen that yeah, painting. It's wonderful. And he's in Nauvoo. And he actually um, was going to start a bid for president of the United States. He's going to run for president of the United States. Unbelievable. Um, this guy is kind of at this point a megalomaniac. Yeah. Now he gets into trouble here because in the 1830s he has a revelation that uh, you, you're supposed to have more than one wife. Yeah. Now curiously enough... This revelation kind of occurred about the same time that he was sending out men on their missions and then marrying their wives. Yeah, it was um, coincidentally enough. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> In the same revelation, it's, it's Doctrine and Covenants 132. Um, he says, because they're concerned about the patriarchs of the Bible having, like Abraham, having more than one wife and Jacob, uh, and they wanted God to explain it, and God gives a revelation saying that it, it's necessary, polygamy is necessary to get to the highest level of the celestial kingdom. Uh, so in that same revelation, he rebukes Emma as well and says, you better accept this or else you'll be damned. <laughs> <laughs> it's very smart of Joseph Smith to yeah. have God do this. Yeah, to, I mean, really hit up his wife, who I'm sure... I don't know many wives out there who their husband comes up with their, this revelation would all of a sudden say, oh, sure, honey, why don't you invite another woman to our yeah. bed? And this is Victorian era, right? So this is really clearly outside of the pale. This is um, a very repressed, uh, tied down, buckled down, prim and proper society. So this is way out of bounds. Uh, the way the church tells it, 
Joseph Smith was really reluctant that he, the um, angel of the Lord had to come down three times. And the last time he, he brandished a burning sword and said that he would um, kill Joseph Smith if he didn't do this. Yeah, I've heard I, that story. I, I found this hard to believe, too, when it was told to me. Yeah, now I find it so funny that uh, that Joseph Smith was reluctant, and then he went out and married like 16 women. 30s. Uh, I oh, think was he was 30? in the 30s. Oh, yeah. was he in the 30s? I thought it was only 16. Yeah. Um, something like 30 women. Now, I don't think he slept with all of them. Some of them were just spiritual wives. Um, but I believe he slept with quite a few of them. Oh, I'm pretty sure if he was married to them, he was performing his husbandly duties. <laughs> so, now, the, the problem with this is that Joseph Smith knew that this would not fly in the general public. So he kept it secret. Wisely kept it secret. But, you know, his close friends would be aware that this was going on. Oh, it so would be pretty well obvious. He he revealed it to uh, his close apostles around him, the people, he, you know, they organized, just like the old uh, um, the time of Jesus, he'd have a quorum of the twelve apostles, and then uh, the, the presidency, the prophet himself. So he is doing this in secret, um, denying it in public, and he makes the mistake of revealing it to the laws. The William Law, I think, was one, and um, uh, I think his brother was another. And uh, they were, quite rightly, I believe, uh, appalled by well, this practice. What a surprise. Uh, you're in a Victorian society, like you said, buckled down, and all of a sudden he's coming to them and saying, oh, by the way, it's completely fine if we marry a couple other women. So... <laughs> Um, they, uh, they leave the church, but stay in Nauvoo. They want to, um, reveal this secret that Joseph Smith has been keeping, uh, to the entire community and reveal that he's a fraud and a false prophet and et cetera, et cetera. So they set up the Nauvoo Expositor. It's a local newspaper with a printing press and they start printing out articles on Joseph Smith's belief in and practice of polygamy. We're, yeah. we're now down to the winding up scene here. Yeah, this is where really things start winding up. The nation starts sitting up, taking notice, and really starts getting pissed off. So uh, things are coming to a head. It's causing a lot of problems. Joseph Smith tries to discredit them. His efforts don't really work. He calls a city meeting and they decide to destroy the printing press. Yeah, um, not now, a wise decision. The the church again would say, you know, they say that the, the apostles were really angry and that the city council members were really angry at the laws and they were a big nuisance and they were causing a, a public nuisance. Yeah, obviously, they were doing Satan's work at this point. Right. And Joseph Smith reluctantly went along with it. Um, again, I find that hard to believe. But uh, they actually stormed the Nauvoo Expositor's office and tossed the printing press out of the second story window, destroying it. Now imagine how this flies in a country that's we're, we're in the year, I believe, 1843 or 1844 now. Yep. Joseph Smith's 39 years old. We're, we're a single generation from, maybe two generations from the Revolutionary War. Yeah. Uh, taxation without representation. Freedom of speech is paramount. Uh, and this is um, clearly an un-American assault on freedom of speech. Oh, of course. I mean, we're talking, this is shortly after the Tea Party. I mean, we're looking at, they... It's like World War II was to us. Yeah. Right? And not that long ago. 
Um, you know, there's a complaint lodged, and they send troops down to arrest Joseph Smith. There's this interesting story where he's fleeing, and I think, is it Emma Smith who convinces him to come back and, and face up to it? Someone, to, I think it was. Yeah, I think um, you're right. He's about to go to Utah. He wants to go to Utah and start over again, like just like he left Missouri. But he, he listens, he turns around, and he says, you know, I feel like I'm a, a lamb being led to the slaughter. Yeah, we've um, all kind heard of like that. a, a Jesus yeah. complex. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he's taken to the Carthage Jail in Carthage, Illinois, with John Taylor and um, his brother Hiram, and I think one other person. I can't remember who the other guy was. They're put in a jail cell, and uh, anti-Mormon sentiments running high, a mob gathers around the jail cell. Uh, they fire into there. It's interesting. This is this is all written, um, I believe, by John Taylor, and it's in yeah. the Doctrine and Covenants. So you can read firsthand account. John Taylor was there. Uh, uh, the the door opened. They they were holding against it. The door opened. Um, An arm comes in and starts firing. Yeah, and they whack him. John Taylor's got a cane. So they're whacking him with a cane. Taylor gets hit uh, in the hip, I believe, uh, and he said that you know. It took off a big wad of flesh from his hip, and he fell down and crawled underneath the bed, and shots are flying back and forth. They shoot through the door. They hit Hiram, I think, beneath the chin, uh, and he's dead before he hits the ground. The door opens. Joseph Smith bolts for the window. They're on the second story. Yeah. And uh, he's going to leap out. To the mob, of course, to his death. There's nowhere to run. There's a mob on the ground. There's a mob. Well, I'm sure at this point he was completely panicking. I mean, he's got people trying to bust in the door. He sees the window, thinks, oh, my escape, goes jump out. Yeah, a more charitable um, (laughs) interpretation of the events would be that he's trying to draw the fire away from John Taylor and the other guy in the room. By by sacrificing himself and jumping. That's out the that's very charitable, but uh, I think it's escape that's on the top of his mind. We're talking panic, is my opinion here. Apparently, he gets shot twice: once through the chest and once through the back. He falls down, um, still alive when he hits the ground. Pulls himself up to the well, and I think gets gets shot multiple times at that point, and eventually dies. John Taylor, another. Um, one of these Mormons love these stories. John Taylor uh, got shot in the chest, but it bounced off his pocket watch. Yeah, I've heard that a lot, too. They have the pocket watch uh, inside the museum. You can actually see the pocket watch. Really? I've never yeah. seen this pocket watch. Um, I have. You can see it in the museum across from the Joseph Smith Center in Temple Square. Um, so that's the story of his martyrdom. Uh, after that, very briefly, Brigham Young kind of packs up. They finish the temple at Nauvoo. And then promptly leave it. Um, they pack up, go to Utah. Uh, Brigham Young is governor for a long time uh, until I believe he's thrown out for polygamy, was it? Or he organized a defense against the government. I think they were, they marched in, and yeah. it was a big thing. Abraham Lincoln ran against the twin pillars of barbarism, which were slavery and polygamy. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and it was it was a big thing. They made polygamy illegal in the territories, um, so the, the federal government marched against them, and I think Joe, Brigham Young was removed from his office. He wasn't tried because he was so popular in the state of Utah, they feared a, a massive uprising. Now, that's an interesting thing, because it's also another story in the LDS Church about how this army came into Salt Lake, and they had heard so many stories about how bad polygamists were and how 
dirty and grungy and just, you know, savage these Mormons were with their polygamy. And the story goes that this army marches in, sees how clean and well-kept the people are, and they can't raise a hand against them. Right. <laughs> I'm sure that happens. I'm sure that's exactly what uh, it was. I prefer Mark Twain's um, visit to Utah where he... He says that uh, <laughs> I love Mark Twain. <laughs> he says that the Book of Mormon is essentially chloroform in print. <laughs> it'll, it'll put you to sleep. Very it quickly. has put me to sleep several times. Um, and uh, he wondered what the fuss was about polygamy because uh, these guys weren't um, looking for sex per se. Because if you've ever seen a Mormon polygamous wife you would think that these men were saints for marrying even one of them, much less three or four. <laughs> that's, that's what I love. I mean, Mark Twain was sitting there thinking, wow, these guys have it going on. They got many women. And then, of course, he sees a Mormon woman and goes, wow, these guys are saints. Yeah, um, it's, it's amazing. <laughs> Brigham Young finally dies. Uh, John Taylor is next in line. Um, John Taylor refuses to submit uh, and change... Uh, the practice of polygamy. So he spends his three years as church president essentially on the run from the feds. Yeah. Uh, moving from uh, place to place, from home to home, from town to town. And eventually uh, he dies as well. And he re remembered that he would, he, he said he'd never be taken alive again, that they'd have to kill him because uh, he remembered back in 1844 in uh, the actual Carthage, Illinois. Yeah. Getting shot up. Yeah. So the next president's Wilford Woodruff. Um, Wilford Woodruff says that enough is enough, you know, they're going, the federal government's going to descend upon us, take all of our temples, um, and destroy us, literally. And so he says, I'm acting today in, in the, uh, for the temporal salvation of the church. And he, uh, issues the manifesto, which is, uh, unanimously approved by the church, and that stops the practice of polygamy. Now, if you read a story by D. Michael Quinn, that was in 1890 where the manifesto was issued. They issued a second manifesto in 1904, Joseph F. Smith. Why did they have to do this if they quit the practice in 1890? Yeah. They yeah. continued it. And it was through the highest level of the church um, from 1890 to 1904. Dozens of plural marriages were uh, approved and performed um, by uh, apostles, or, or I think even Wilfred Woodruff did it himself. Oh, I'm sure of that. I'm sure. I, I mean... Just because you toss out this little manifesto saying, ha-ha, we're not going to do it again, don't kill us, it doesn't mean that they're just going to up and stop. Right. I think what they were thinking was to return it to the days of Joseph Smith where it was taught in secret and practiced in secret, and the church um, disavowed it. And that happened until 1904 when Reed Smoot was elected to the Senate and they refused to seat him, uh, which is interesting because um, polygamy is essentially sanctioned adultery, right? Yeah. Um, so it's a, it's it's horrible to be a polygamist, but you can be an adulterer all you want. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how many of these Senate senators are cheating on their wives? Oh, I can guarantee you dozens. Hypocritical. But anyway, they're, um, they have reached smooth hearings to see if he's of enough moral fiber to <laughs> to take a seat on the Senate. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know how they said this with a straight face. But... Um, <laughs> But uh, they hold these reach smooth hearings, and one of the things was, you know, are you going to, are you practicing things in private that, that you're um, denying in public? And they were going to uh, subpoena church records and everything like that. It was a big fiasco, and I believe two apostles ended up being excommunicated from the church. It's um, 
unprecedented. I surprised. But I believe yeah. it was um, John W. Taylor and Matthew Cowley, two of the apostles that were most prominent. Um, clearly, you know, John, son of John Taylor. Yeah. Um, and they, they kind of took the hit for the church. I think they were offered as sacrificial lambs, actually. Well, I really think that's exactly what it is. I mean, you're talking the government's starting to go, hey, we're not as stupid as you think we are. Uh, what you got going on there? And they're like, hey, these two are. Right. Sorry, you know, it wasn't sanctioned by the prophet or the president, the church itself. It was just these two rogue apostles. I don't think anybody bought that. But it calmed things down. Um, well, I can guarantee you nobody bought it. But the government, I mean, that's that's what I love. The LDS church is constantly, the government was after us. They didn't want to press this as much as I'm sure the LDS church wanted it to be pressed. They wanted the issue to be done and over. Right. And this was kind of... a. a um, an equitable solution for all parties involved. Um, sorry about the two apostles who got excommunicated, but um, but that's how it went. So after after that, I think you had Heber J. Grant for a while. Everything was kind of status quo for a long time, uh, with the exception of 1978. So 1978, they have this revelation and they announced to the world that blacks can now have the priesthood. Because they've been barred uh, from having the priesthood almost since the beginning. I mean, there were a lot. Elijah Abel, I think, um, got the priesthood. He was given the priesthood, I believe, by Joseph Smith. Yeah. Um, but you talk about, uh, um, you know, earlier members of the church or later members of the church. Brigham Young, the policy under Brigham Young. And Brigham Young was, was president of the church for the longest of anyone. He was president of the church for 33 years. Um, it's quite difficult to get that kind of longevity now because they start when they're 90. Yeah, you know? they they really get there when they're <laughs> old and you're it's you're a, thinking three years yeah, tops. It's a gerontocracy now. <laughs> um, just It's just ruled by old men. Uh, but the policy during his lifetime was that if you even had a drop of Negro blood, right, it's what they called it, that you could not have the priesthood, which is very fascinating because Brother Brigham, we all have African blood in us. We came out of Africa. That's where we evolved. I'm, I'm pretty sure there's a drop in... in <laughs> How far do you want to go back, us. brother? Um, anyway, <laughs> uh, it was more and more unpopular through the civil rights era of the 60s. Uh, and through the 70s, I think it was just untenable. Um, yeah, and I got to love how this prophecy of the blacks getting priesthood came well before oh wait i mean well after the civil rights movement yeah god had to live through the 60s i think to really understand um well he was probably still coming rights. down from his high <laughs> <laughs> he's like oh damn i haven't given the blacks a priesthood Ooh, yet. Uh, well there goes my short-term memory i knew there was something <laughs> i forgot oh. oh give me another hit <laughs> pass the bong pass the bong hey yeah. guy give me your, i'll give this revelation then pass the bong interestingly enough um this wasn't a revelation you know at least joseph smith had the balls to, to write down his revelations uh, wilford woodruff got a couple revelations i think brigham young did john taylor these guys wrote them down you know they're like thus saith the lord here's what the lord said this is the lord dictating yeah, to you, me you don't get revelation don't. anymore what they did is we'd like you get press releases the manifesto is a press release. All right, here it is. This is um, not, you know, section 139 of the Doctrine and Covenants. No, no, no. This, this is, is official declaration two. And it starts, to whom it may concern. <laughs> <laughs> it's a letter. It's, I mean, oh, it's sad. It, it's fantastic. 
In early June of this year, this is 1978, the First Presidency announced that a revelation had been received by President Spencer W. Kimball, extending priesthood and temple blessings to all worthy male members of the church. President Kimball has asked that I advise the conference that after he had received this revelation, which came to him after extended meditation and prayer in the sacred rooms of the Holy Temple, he presented it to his counselors who accepted it and approved it. It was then uh, presented to the Quorum of the Twelve, unanimously approved it, and then it was you know, presented to everybody. Now, see, that, that's one thing I love is he comes down and says, you know what, I've meditated on this, I've prayed to God, God has told me that we should allow the blacks to have the priesthood. And oh. then they had to have a vote. Where's the re <laughs> Where's the revelation? That's what I want to know. Oh, hey dudes, I had a revelation. Well, what did it say? It said give black people the priesthood. Well, uh, can, can... All in favor? <laughs> <laughs> well, can we see the revelation? Okay. Uh, trust me. Trust me, just trust now, me. And you're right. What if they had voted against it? That's just what I'm thinking. <laughs> would what, it mean that he didn't get the revelation? Yeah, I mean, would it would it mean that they were going against God? I mean, who is going to sit there <laughs> while the prophet comes down, a man you supposedly believe talks to God on a regular basis? Who's going to sit there and say, "Oh, God said that. Uh, I vote against God." Well, I would love if um, you know the president, the counselors, the quorum of the twelve, the general authorities. You know, and they present it to the church body as a whole, and they're like, screw that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <we're, laughs> I don't think so. All those in favor, all those opposed, every hand goes up. <laughs> well, I guess God was wrong in this instance. Damn it. <laughs> I would love to see something like that rejected. I'd love it. What would they do? Well, have you ever, <laughs> ever, and I'm talking ever, gone to a church meeting, a Mormon church meeting, where you've seen something that was proposed rejected. Never. Never. It's uh, it's always a little boring. Okay, we got to release these guys. Here's some more callings. Everyone in favor, blah, blah, blah. I wanted to go there and, and raise my hand just to be the one lone person uh, opposing vote. Yeah, I mean... What would happen? They'd probably call you into their office. That's exactly what would happen. Because <laughs> they have stories about people who did raise their hand in objection. They have stories. You, you never really know these pre people personally, but they have stories where somebody raises their hand in opposition. They get pulled out. into. I mean, this has to be horrible for whatever person is being put up for this office. But they, they go out. They talk to whoever opposed it. And then they come back in and they say, oh, sorry, uh, we aren't going to have this up. And this is off of one person raising wow. their hand so it has in to, opposition. it has to be unanimous? To, uh, yeah, it has Otherwise, to be unanimous. Otherwise, the guy doesn't unanimous. get the Otherwise, he doesn't get it. Wow. I, you know, I would say, why vote in the first place? Why even have that sham? I yeah. mean, the bishop is supposed to have some sort of godly... Uh, direct line, right? So either the bishop's right or he's wrong. Yeah, that's if he's a wrong. That's escape clause. It's, it's an escape clause. If he's wrong, he shouldn't be the bishop. Uh, if he's right, then God's right. And why, how dare you vote against him? Is the whole voting thing stupid? It seems like you know we're in America, and so we have to vote. It, we have to make it look democratic, but it's anything but a democracy. Yeah, I mean, really, can you imagine people sitting down there because they do votes when the general uh, leaders of the church come down with some new uh, new proposition or something, all those in favor, all those opposed. I would love to see it where some people sit there and think, you know what, I really don't like what they're saying. And then you get like a mixed vote. But you, I have never in all of my church years seen anything like well, that. Well, they'll tell you that um, if you are out of step with the prophet and apostles, then you're sinning. 
Yeah. So they see that, I think they would see that as a bunch of sinners raising their hands, which to me again says that it's a total sham. The vote's a total sham. Yeah. I mean, it, it really comes down to Charlie's exactly right. If you are voting against the prophet, you are the one who is in the wrong, not the prophet. I'd love to see that happen, though. Oh, I'd love I would to see pay the majority money. of the members vote against. I him. would seriously go sit there with popcorn and just watch the oh, reaction. God, that would be fantastic. I have no idea what they'd do. All right, um, that is Mormonism. Not yet, not yet. There's nutshell. one more thing I want to add. One more thing. Um, there's something I've heard, and it comes from the temple. Now, you get uh, in the LDS religion, you get married civilly, and then you get married eternally in the temple. Basically, you're sealed together as one. Well, what happens when you get divorced? Oh, we haven't even gone into the temple. No, we haven't even. We touched should probably on the temple. touch on that briefly. In Mormonism, uh, there are secret teachings that are reserved for the most righteous people in the religion. And in order to qualify to go to the temple, you have to attend church for one year. Uh, you have to be baptized, obviously. You can't curse. Uh, <laughs> attend church for a year, pay tithing faithfully for a year. Can't watch rated R movies. Do all your callings, and then you have to go and interview with the bishop. And the bishop asks you a bunch of questions like, do you masturbate? Um, yeah, that's always a good one. Uh, yes, I do. In fact, I did it out in the hall <laughs> while I was waiting. You mean in the last ten minutes? <laughs> Are we talking in the last two days? <laughs> do you... Uh, gamble? Do, do you, you watch, watch porn, porn online? Do you, do you read your scriptures? Do you, um, uh, well, it's not like approve, um, sustain. Do you sustain, sustain yes, that's the prophets? It. See, as, do you sustain our current prophet? Who is it now? Thomas S. Monson? As prophet, no seer, and revelator? And my answer would be, I've never heard him prophesy, see, or revelate anything. So I can't really answer that question. <laughs> he just gives talks every once, they like just, twice a year. They just kind of repeat everything they've been saying for the last 30 <laughs> years, don't they? So if you pass that, you get a little card. It's kind of neat. My yeah. wife has a little card. Yeah, you get a little card, and it's, it's like a little ID to get into the Pentagon. You get yeah. to go into the temple. You go into the temple, and you go and you learn about all these cool little um, things. You get like a name. They teach you a secret handshake. Um, the secret teachings and stuff. And uh, once you're done with that, then you get garments. And they're like yep. these magical underwear that you wear that protect you against things. And they're kind of symbol. They have little symbols sewn in. and they, they uh, Along are, the nipples. And, yeah, uh, yeah. And in the groin area. In the groin, yeah. And they, they symbolize like they're tokens of your covenant. I don't know exactly what it is because I haven't gone through. I've never and gone through either. they swear everyone to secrecy. Um, so my wife obviously won't tell me. So we're we're kind of guessing what goes on in the temple. But you can find the whole thing on the internet. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's people out there who have told about it. I, In all honesty, I haven't been interested enough to look. Yeah, Once I found out that they have a, she a secret handshake to get into heaven, I was no longer interested. It just sounds like one of the clubs down the street where you need a secret handshake yeah. to go up in the levels. Yeah. So uh, now what Leighton's talking about is temple marriage. They... There, there's a civil marriage, which is what my and my wife had. Me, myself, and my, me and my wife. That was horrible English. That was horrible. That's what that's what my wife and I had uh, because I wasn't LDS. I wasn't baptized in the Mormon Church. Yeah, now, although his wife is worthy, he is not allowed in the temple, and so correct. They are married until death do they right. part. We're married for time, but not eternity. Exactly. In order to get married for eternity. You have to both be temple worthy and have it performed in the temple. A lot of people complain this is exclusive because 
you know, family members who aren't Mormon can't be invited to the ceremony, whereas every other church allows you to do it. Yeah. But whatever. I, it doesn't seem to it, me. It's kind of big I mean, deal. I really don't care. My daughter gets married in the temple. I'll uh, happily play my um, fatherly role and sit out in the foyer. Yeah. I'll bring a. Um, but I'll be the godfather sitting down there myself. <laughs> so. I'll have my iPhone and some word games, or we'll play chess or something. Yeah, hey, I like that idea. Chess. Um, you know, it's uh, it's fine with me. I don't really care. But um, they, what you're bringing up is that you get married in the temple, and uh, if you get divorced, they'll yeah. give you a civil divorce, but they typically allow you to marry. And the exception is, you know, a man can get divorced to a woman civilly. Three, four, five times doesn't matter. He's still married to all of them. all of those women so in the temple, and so when he dies, those women yeah. are his wives. Yeah. So it's a de facto form of polygamy, right? On the books, he's a polygamist, even though he's not sleeping with all these women at the same time. Women can't. Uh, if they remarry, they have to get a temple divorce. Yeah. It's, so there's it's no a, polyandry. It's just polygamy. It's just a very curious thing. And the only reason why I know about it is because my brother went through a divorce. And that's how I found out about all of this is because his ex-wife uh, was wanting one of these uh, spiritual divorces, I guess. And temple it's just, divorce. Temple divorce. And I mean, it's just, it's a very, very curious idea to me. That if you're divorcing them down here on earth, why would you want to keep them in heaven for all eternity if you can't stand them down here? One of my <laughs> missionaries hit one of my uh, uncle's door, knocked on the door. Oh, no. And he said, um, how would you like to spend the rest of eternity with your family? He's like, I don't know what house you think you're knocking on, <laughs> but that's a punishment. <laughs> What did I do to deserve that? <laughs> All right. That's kind of Mormonism in a nutshell. There's a lot of other stuff that we, we can get into and we will. Yeah. Um, but that's kind of a um, semi-brief overview of, of Mormon history. Yeah. I mean, we can't, we really can't fit it all in one hour, but we're doing our best. Yeah, it's a little more in-depth than you see in the five-minute uh, news stories. And it's as accurate as, as I can make it. Yeah. So... Uh, oh, what are you trying to say that I'm not making it? Yeah, you're not helping at all. All right, well, thank you very you much. You slept through church and your whole life, and <laughs> doesn't everybody who goes to the LDS church? <laughs> I can't say. I um, I find it excruciating. It's painful. So, um, what we're going to try to do for the rest of the month is um, hit specific. We got hopefully two more of these Mormon lectures, uh, and I want to spend a lot of time on polygamy, Adam, God. Um, um, the um, Abraham, the Book of Abraham. Book of Abraham. Yeah. Um, there's there's a whole lot to hit. In fact, I would even like to discuss Joseph Smith's seer stones. Right. So we we'll, we'll spend the next two um, podcasts doing that, and we'll try to uh, do a lot of research and find out a lot of interesting stuff. And then the last uh, podcast of the month, hopefully, will be a discussion with some educated Mormons who know what we're talking about, who are aware of these things, and see how they deal with them. Yeah, and I'm working on that right now. So if there are any educated Mormons out there, we would love to have you to sit down and discuss these issues. Otherwise, I'll take the Mormon side, and Leighton will take the anti-Mormon side. Sweet! And uh, <laughs> nobody wants that. And obviously, I will be crushed like a little ant. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll see you next week.